Let us now turn to our scripture reading, which is Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Amos 8, 1 through 7, and this morning we'll read a verse, a chapter 8, verses 1 through, 1 through 6, and then next, next week, um, 7, 7 through 14. So, let us turn to chapter 8 of Amos and read, beginning with verse 1. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere, they shall be thrown out in silence. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fall, fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. May the Lord be blessed by our understanding of this text. Sometimes, as I uh, as I added by way of explaining the text, sometimes the, the beauty and the, the majesty of the text, in one way or the other, sometimes it's the form, the words, or the theology. But in this case, in Amos' case today, we're going to see how Amos, even though he's a, a shepherd in Israel, a, a farmer of figs, as it were, keeper of sheep, even though he's a rather basic man, we'll see how his biblical theology is so rich indeed. And uh, the, the, it's the beauty of the text that in, in this regard, when I get into it, I think you'll be amazed at how complex it is and how these references that he makes refer to this passage and that passage uh, uh, into the back into the Old Testament. It's really a marvel. And so when I when I see that when I'm when I, when God gives me the ability to see it, then I'm I'm kind of excited to try to show it to you, and have you um, and have you appreciate it too. Uh, uh, so I hope you I hope you will. You know, well when you when you have some of the older pastors like Stephen and myself that are that are with you, you have the benefit of uh, of men that have been stu- have studied the Word of God in seminary deeply and and intensely and then had the benefit of 50 years or so of ministry that were we, we've been immersed in the word of god and one of the one of the real joys of my life in being a minister is that god has forced me to be in the word of god much more than i wanted or much more more than i would have if i had just been on my own because i've had to you know i've had to uh be ready to to do church and to preach every sunday and uh, you know there's an old joke where the fellow said but mommy i don't i just don't feel like going to church today and she said but but billy you're the pastor you've got to go (laughs) and so um that has been a mark of my life and uh god has blessed me so much through it It just i just uh like i say it's it's if if it was up to me i would not have done done it as much and i know there, there are so many sundays throughout my life where i felt overwhelmed i felt like i was inept and couldn't do it. God said, "Do you go do it? Pour, get into this word. Pour yourself. 
uh, uh, play the man, you know, put on, put on your big boy shoes and, and do this do this job for the people of God. And it's been a total blessing. And uh, I hope you'll see that. Hope you'll see that through this what what comes to pass uh, this morning. Um, I'm, first of all, I'm going to hold up this banana for you uh, to get into this text because it involves the. It starts in verse one with the uh, uh, with the uh, prophecy. Thus says the Lord: the, the Lord showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit, and He said, Amos, what do you see? And Amos said, uh, A basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people. So just seeing a, a basket of summer fruit is somewhat confusing. That's not apparent. You know, when God showed him this basket of summer fruit, I mean, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't say, well, here are the four points that I gather from this vision of the, of the summer fruit. Um, but uh, when I hold up this banana, you kind of get the idea. What, the idea of summer fruit is that the fruit is ripe. I mean, the fruit of of what they have harvested is ripe, and uh, it's time to be eaten. Now, this banana right here is just barely. And let, I mean, it, it, it's, it would be great for banana bread, especially tomorrow, maybe. But today, it is right. It is teetering on the edge of being inedible. Uh, uh, you know, when you eat a banana, you like you like something to be there firmly that you can bite into, and you don't want a green banana. But on the other hand, you don't want to bite into it and have it have it kind of smoosh all over your face because it's so ripe. That's about, because I know Susan and I made the mistake of both buying bananas one week. <laughs> so we had an abundance of bananas and, we, and we, we just can't eat them fast enough. And so here, this is the result. You know, you've got, got four bananas. I tried to pick the one that looked the worst for you today. But uh, I can feel it in my hand. It just to, just to hold it, I, it's soft and, and you know right underneath the skin. So that's the idea here. Of that's the idea of this of this uh, basket of summer fruit. Uh, God was saying to he by this basket of summer fruit he was telling uh, Amos he was having Amos to preach about this and to show the people of God that. Uh, in terms of their productivity and in terms of their readiness to be Christian people in that day, to be faithful people, they were they were there and yet they were very, very close to being past the season when these things uh, should be with them. Now, when I read this, I, 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 I admit that I didn't really get it at first. And... Uh, I was using Matthew Poole in his commentary, and he said, he said that this was the the fourth vision um, of Amos, and I I said it was a fourth vision, and he, he pointed to the the three previous visions, where the the vision of locust seven one, the vision of the fire seven four, and the vision of the plumb line in uh, seven seven. And so God has given Amos three previous illustrations, and he gave them a vision of these things so that he could preach on these things before the people. And so he preached on the locusts. He preached on the fire, the consuming fire. He preached on the plumb line, that God was holding up this plumb line, you know, that to, to measure Israel. Where, where is the straight way of the Lord? You and I may we may determine what what the, what we think is the straight way, but we have to compare it to God's rule. And the short catechism says, "What rule hath God given us to to determine 
what is rightful and just and lawful. And it's the, the law of God, that plumb line that God gave us in the word of God. And so he's given us these three previous visions. And now he gives uh, uh, Amos probably the most um, bewildering uh, vision, namely the vision of the summer fruit. But it was a very, very sobering uh, vision that God held out to him. And he explains that in the very next verse. Um, and uh, Poole was right in saying that, um, that the, the, there was this vision was obscure enough that, that it might not be readily apparent. And so God explains himself right away. He says, the end has come upon my people Israel or Ephraim or the ten tribes, however you might address them. I will not pass by them any more. Now this term, pass by, is very, very interesting. And I don't know whether you'll catch it immediately or not, but uh, the, the, word, the word pass was very significant in Israel's history, especially as they were coming out of Egypt, wasn't it? When God, when, at that time, God said that he would pass through Egypt, but he would pass over Israel. This was an indication that he was coming with wrath. And so when the wrath, when the wrath passed through Egypt, it meant that that would be for condemnation and for destruction. It would be deadly. But now he says he was going to pass through Israel. He was going to process Israel much like he processed Egypt. And uh, you can see that in um, verse 5. Uh, our chapter 5, verse 17 of Amos. If you look, because there it says, um, uh, in, in talking about the day of the Lord, he says, uh, In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says uh, the Lord. And... Uh, in Exodus 12, 12, it uses this word in two, those two ways. One way with Egypt, Exodus 12, 12. One way with Egypt, another way with, uh, with Israel. He would pass over Israel. The, 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 uh, the deathly, lethal spirit of God would pass through Egypt. But why would he pass over the houses of Israel? To every house that obeyed his word and put the uh, the lamb's blood above their door. The blood which stood for both righteousness and the forgiveness of sins. God being righteous himself, God being righteous himself, he could not condemn people that were righteous. He could only condemn those who did not have the blood, who did not have the righteousness of God with them. That is Israel or Egypt, because Israel, did, Egypt didn't care. Israel did not heed the word of God. And so wherever the spirit of death came upon Egypt, and it saw the blood of justification above the house, above the door, God was true to himself. He would not judge as wicked that which is righteous. And that gives us a sense in our own lives of how though we know we are sinners in the flesh, yet God will pass over us in Jesus Christ. Because he will account Jesus' righteousness to us in a wonderful, inspiring way. But now, having done that for Israel in time past, 
today, in the, in, the, in the time of the basket of ripe fruit, in this day, God was saying, I have come to the end of my patience, whereas I passed over you before for this alien righteousness of yours that you obtained through the sacrifices in the temple. I'm, I'm reigning in my, my grace. Now, now you shall see what Egypt dealt with in the terrible wrath of God. Oh, brothers and sisters in the Lord, how terrible it is to face the living God without that covering, without that beautiful righteousness, without that virtue or, or, or moral strength that we obtain uh, synthetically through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not ours by our own works. It's only by the synthetic process of uh, imputation. Where, where Christ says, if you want this, it's yours. I will count it as worthy. I will count it as yours, even though it is mine. And in that, we understand the wonder and the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here in chapter 8, he says, I will not pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day. The King James Version says, uh, says there, <clears throat> That the wailing, it uses the word howling, which I like even better. Uh, wailing and howling, though, because the, the, we think of songs in worship. We think of singing the psalms. Uh, we think of the songs that God gave his people. We think of the beauty of them. But God says, now he will not listen to them. He's already told them that he would not listen to their songs. He said, that he said before in Amos that he would not listen to their prayers. Because he, he recognized the, the, the wickedness of those prayers and the wickedness of those songs. Yes, they'd come to church, but they sang vainly because they really didn't care. And um, he says after that, at the end of verse 3, he said, Many dead bodies everywhere, they shall be thrown out in silence. We do not understand today, brothers and sisters, we do not understand the connection between faith and life and between faithlessness and death, between true worship and life and false worship, vain worship, empty worship, superficial worship and death. Wherever there is heterodoxy, wherever there is false faith, they, the, the people of that era, era are living uh, under the threat of death. And time and time again in world history where there has been false faith or where there has been Satanism, there has been death. The, the Canaanites loved to sacrifice their own children. They got all worked up over it. They had great faith in it. God had given them over to the foolishness and the vanity of thinking that if they killed their children in the sacrificial fires, that God would bless them, that the gods of the nature would bless them and would give them good crops and that sort of thing. God gives us over to this idiocy, this, this terrible, uh, vicious idiocy because we have turned our backs upon him, disregarded his wisdom. And so there we see this link between infidelity and death. And so here God tells Amos that inasmuch as Israel had given up on him, uh, they had cast out the idea of true faith the faith that controlled their whole lives, 
that death would follow soon after. And he says, many dead bodies everywhere, they shall be thrown out in silence. There would not even be a proper burial lament over these people for the great things of their lives. They would simply be cast out of the house in the alleys uh, for having been uh, killed or died of sickness and that kind of thing. And this happened in both the Assyrian uh, invasions of the northern ten tribes, and it also happened with the Babylonians when they came in and captured Judah. This connection between infidelity and, uh, and, and, uh, and death. We just do not believe that here in America today. We just do not believe it. People are the leaders of the land, would parade forth and preach all of these foolish things. Uh, the things that God has said, they, they call that hate. The things that our precious Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, has prophesied by his coming, they consider that foolishness. And the wise things of Christ, they consider that foolishness. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and following. And people just don't get it that there is actually death uh, lingering in the shadows of this kind of lifestyle. We love our families. We want them to be alive. Not, most of us don't relish going to funerals. And we, in our lives, we feel like the fewer funerals, the better. You know, we don't, uh, we don't, make, a, we don't make a hobby uh, or a popular thing of conjuring or meditating on death. But we should if we deviate from the Lord and refuse his gospel and that kind of thing. And so um, uh, there's a relationship between false worship, false theology, and death. And uh, the American church really needs to, to get that straight. I mean, the, the American church is, is, is a coddling the doctrines of devils and uh, the infidelity of theology, and the infidelity of faith. And they're playing games of this kind of thing. They're playing games of the Lord's Sabbath. They're playing games of the things that the Lord holds dear. And they just cannot bring themselves to, to understand what, Isaiah, what Amos says here, that there's a connection between death, life and death, and what one, how one deals with the Lord. Now, in verse 4, um, it, this, this is a dimension of Amos' prophecy that it kind of jolts us. But instead of talking about uh, the theology of Israel, as I've labored before to show you, Amos focuses on their social ethics. Now, you remember, in terms of ethics, you've got the ethics of God in the first four commandments. Uh, we won't go into that right now in any, any extended way, but simply the first four commandments teach about who God is, uh, the fact that you cannot play games with him, with his with ideas about him, his attributes. Uh, thou, thou shalt not make graven, a graven image of the living God. You have to portray him as he is in his word. And, and then you cannot, uh, if, you, if you have that straight, uh, then you've got to uh, do everything you can regarding his name to build that name up and to make that name the umbrella over your lives. The opposite of that is taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. We're supposed to use the name of the Lord in a good way. We're supposed to witness about the Lord. We're supposed to say good things about the Lord. 
We're supposed to praise the Lord. We're supposed to thank the Lord. You see, the opposite of that is uh, uh, taking the name of our Lord Jesus in vain. Uh, I, I saw something I really liked on Facebook in terms. Of, I think with Bill Maher. I think I put it on my Facebook site. Uh, and yet, at a, a, because Bill is talking very wisely about the some of the terrible Marxist stuff that's going on in the society today. And yet, in the midst of that, he uses the name of the Lord Jesus in vain. He has no understanding of how that offends the living God. He has no understanding of how Jesus should be the most precious thing that we can gather in our lives and that we can believe in. Why would we possibly use that name as a vulgar epithet to emphasize whatever it is that we're saying? Try to bring attention to our thoughts and to what we were saying. But but that's the way it is because we we just do not have these things straight. So in this case, uh, the Lord doesn't even focus on that though. But in verse 4 he says, Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land uh, fall. I've explained this before in Amos. You know, why would God be more concerned about the poor, at least in terms of what he says? Why would he be more concerned about the poor and the needy than he is about his own name? And the the reason is because, first of all, he's made us in his image, and, and people are precious. That's one thing that liberalism does not understand. Marxism does not understand the preciousness of people, even people who have not confessed their faith unto the Lord. Because they were created in the image of God. They're, they had his imprints, his fingerprints all over their lives. And uh, the Bible says that we should treat all men well, peradventure. Uh, he will bring grace into their life and, and bring them and manifest the fact that they were the elect and that they were uh, people that he was, got, he, that they were going to be the objects of his mercy. Um, so people are special in that regard. And then people are special because, um, because they step forward and claim to be people of faith. And such were these. All the Israelites were people who outwardly had said, we need Jehovah God. They get circumcised. They would go to temple. They would go to synagogue. They would do the outward things that indicated that they were the people of God. And so the last thing, if you were a, a righteous leader in Israel, if you were a, a politician in Israel, the last thing that you should do is pass laws and make actions whereby you mistreated the simple people of God. Um, you should do everything you can, not just to hand out largesse as they as the socialists would have us do, but uh, you should do everything you can to kind of pull the people up and, and help all people, all the all your neighbors into prosperity. Now, we do that in the Reformed faith by, first of all, being glad for people's prosperity. When you, when you come to studies on the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. The Puritan, our Puritan forefather said, that this doesn't just mean avoiding stealing, it means that you should be happy for the prosperity of others. You should pray for the prosperity of others. You should pray that God would bless people with with brain power and with the cultivation of their minds and uh, intellectual industry, Uh, that you should bless them with inspiration, whatever whatever the field. 
God gives us inspiration in our fields. He doesn't just give inspiration to the prophets to reveal the word of God. He gives us inspiration in our daily lives for the, the vocations that we have chosen. And so as we, can, we throw ourselves into that, we, and as we develop ourselves and develop the world, we fulfill uh, Genesis uh, 1, uh, 118 and 128, where we, bring, we, we help to cultivate the earth and subdue it. And, uh, you know, bring the wonder of the Lord and all of his inventions and his creations. We bring that out. And uh, so it's a wonderful thing. But here in Israel, the signal reason why God's wrath was going to fall upon them was because the people were transgressing all over the second table of the law. All these laws that had to do with honoring your parents, honoring the generations that preceded you, uh, uh, killing people, hurting people, taking advantage of them, all of the Eighth Commandment, lying to them. Uh, it's, it's a terrible thing when a culture is given over to the lie. Now, many people today will say, well, it's just a lie. Uh, but the Bible sees it as uh, a kind of gospel. It's, it, it sees it as a kind of orthodoxy. You're either part of the light or part of the darkness. If you're part of the light, then you're telling the truth. If you're part of the darkness, then you're telling the lie. You're promoting the lie. You're promoting things that are false and not really prosperous, not really advantageous for people to believe in. Uh, are we promoting promiscuity? Are we promoting licentiousness? Are we promoting uh, envy and greed and these kinds of things? If we are, then we're part of the lie. And so Israel in this day, um, it says in verse 4, they were making the poor of the land to fall. Now it explains in, in verse 5 how God knew that. He says, he says, when will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain? Now, the Hebrew calendar was dominated by the lunar uh, cycles or by, the, by the, the moon as it traveled above the earth. So every time there was a new moon, that was the beginning of a new month. That's how the Israeli calendar went. And uh, every time there was a new moon, even though it wasn't a Sabbath per se, it was a special day because it was the first day of a new month. And so God said, let it be a special day and let, uh, let there be no work done on that day. It was kind of like a quasi-Sabbath to them. But, uh, and so they couldn't, they couldn't trade. But here the Israelites, they, they, they would, they would uh, acknowledge it. They would, they would make a certain deferential gesture toward it. But they were saying in their hearts, when will this be passed so that I may sell grain? And then even the Sabbath, they were saying that we, that we may trade wheat. So their heart was not in these things. And, um, and then he, Amos says, making the ephah small and the shekel large. So they were deflating the commodities that they were selling, and they were inflating the currency with which you would have to buy it. So they're making things doubly expensive. They're making their, it's like with our in our day with the inflation of money that we have, the, the candy bars are smaller and they're putting like fewer crackers into the bag and that, that sort of thing. That's exactly what they're doing here. And you can see the application. This is not something new. This is this goes with the politicians of the the ancient world till now. This is just something that is done as you deflate the currency. Now, one of the horrible things, one of the and uh, well, it says here, falsifying the scales by deceit that we may buy the poor for silver 
and the needy for a pair of sandals. One of the most awful things of our day is the way the president came forth and he said, there's going to be no tax increase on the middle class and the lower classes. No tax increase on them. At the very same time that he said that and he promoted that and he, he, he glorified in it, at the very same time, he made plans to inflate the currency and that means that there's a, roughly there's been a 20% loss in the value of our money in the last three years. Uh, and uh, where is it hitting the worst? It's hitting people that have that don't have grand means. They say that 60% of America today is living paycheck to paycheck. In other words, they don't have any savings in the bank for a rainy day to help them over the tough time. And they're just, it's a, it's a kind of a vicious circle where it breeds anxiety upon anxiety upon anxiety. And at the same time he's doing this, he's, he's saying, he's talking, he's bragging about Bidenomics. You need to see the, the, the wickedness of this. And I, even in our own ranks of the Reformed Church, there's a, there's a nervousness about talking this way. There's a nervousness about appearing too worldly or appearing like, you know, people would say to me, well, Dick, you don't understand economics as well as you should. Uh, why, do, why don't you stick to theology where you're more of a specialist? And I, I say, well, for, for one big reason this morning is because Amos did the same thing. We have a justification via Amos and some of the other prophets that would talk this way. They would say, yes, you can look as theologically pure as you might, but I know of the iniquity of your heart because you really don't love people who are made in the image of God and you process them, you thresh them like you would like to thresh some grain. You get them to vote for you by promising them telephones and free tuition at college and forgiveness of loans, even as you process them and thresh them. It's just, it's, abomin it's an abomination. But this is what was going, this is what was going through God's mind. And so he ran this, he told uh, Amos to preach in this way. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, he says in verse 7, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, or by the inspiration of Jacob, by the excellency of Jacob, um, uh, surely I will never forget any of their works. And so he uh, he promised this uh, condemnation of them where there would be death and the people would just be thrown out into the street. Um, in our day, there is so much iniquity going on, so much confusion. I This past week I was working on this concept and I made two pyramids. I'll, I'll hold them up here. Two, pair, two pyramids based upon the Ten Commandments. And uh, the, over here are the biblical theism. On this side is Satanism, which is real. It's not an overstatement to say this, that, that there are basically only two ways of dealing with this world. And over here, I, 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 just the thought came to me that at, at every point of the Ten Commandments, where God says, A, the world creates a different value system, that says B or non A, the, the opposite of what the Lord would, would say. So I'm working on this is one of my side projects right now to try to, uh, to try to begin to teach and write on that sort of thing. Uh, 
this past uh, yesterday, there's a you probably most of you are not college football uh, people, but uh, yesterday the Colorado Buffaloes played their second game. Now they got a new coach out there named uh, Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders used to be a a wide receiver, and I'm embarrassed to say I can't. I don't remember off the top of my head which team he played for, but he was a rather extravagant guy. He was he was very good, but he was also he also was a self-promoter, so he was called Neon Dion. Uh, and uh, Neon Dion became the coach of the Colorado Buffaloes, which is a Colorado University of Colorado football team. And uh, they've they won two games so far this year. They were not supposed to win any. Uh, and uh, so there's, it's, it's caught the college football world imagination. And they've gone, now they're on TV. As long as they keep winning, they'll be on TV every week, you know, the, one of the games that are promoted because everybody's interested in them. Well, um, yesterday in the game, at a, at a, they had already taken over the game, and uh, there was a, a drive where, uh, oh, yeah, I forgot to say, Neon Dion, the quarterback for the team is his son. His his name uh, is uh, Shadur, Shadur Sanders. It's a... Uh, uh, Anyway, so Shadur uh, was chased all around the field by the other team, managed to scramble out and throw a touchdown down the field and instead of getting caught for a big loss. And then uh, after he did that, um, he took his helmet off, which are, it's a penalty if you do that in college football. And pro- professional, I guess they, they consider it grandstanding or something like that, slowing the game down, trying to bring attention to yourself. Anyway, Shadur... Ripped off his helmet and ran, running across the field like this, you know, like, look at me, I'm wonderful, that sort of thing. They threw the flag immediately for a 15-yard penalty on the next play, you know. Uh, now, so they, they did, he didn't care, see, so they scored the touchdown. <laughs> and, uh, but when he got back to the bench, his father was furious. Neon Dion, he was furious. And he came over with a red face and he said, what in the world were you thinking? <laughs> you know, taking your helmet off. And he said, he said, his father said after the game, he got me laughing. He said, Dad, it's personal. Now, <laughs> you see, uh, that was one of the themes that the coach had tried to inculcate into the, to the players. That this, this game, that this issue, this winning this game, it's personal. And we're going to make it personal. We're going to win the game. You know, you can imagine that. And so his son was just giving it back to him. Now, he, you know, he, he, he probably told the boy later, let it be personal, but let keep your helmet on. <laughs> but I like that. I like that. It's the the boy said it's personal, and it made his father laugh because uh, he understood he'd been selling that idea to these players. But I thought, what a wonderful conclusion to this first sermon, where God is saying He's going to bring His wrath upon Israel because why? Because it's personal with the living God. Why do we not think that God cares about righteousness? Why do we think that God doesn't care whether we love him or not? With the Lord, all things are personal. He is a God who exists. And in his existence, he exhibits power, (coughs) knowledge, unlimited ability, timelessness. There is no way for us to outthink God or to escape his wrath if he, if he is personally offended by us. And in this case, he had raised up this people, Israel. He had found Israel, one of the prophets says, like a foundling 
on the ground like a baby that had just been cast aside, that had been abandoned in the public, and that was being left there to die by exposure out there in the land. And God had found this fondly, and he had embraced it, and he had lifted it up, and he had cured it, and strengthened it, and fed it. And now, impossibly, the foundling was behaving in such a vicious way to its neighbors, both in terms of civil and social ethics and in terms of theology, that God said, you compare to a basket of summer fruit, your day will soon pass and my wrath shall fall. I will not pass over you, but I shall pass through you like I did with Egypt not so long ago. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would bless us with the knowledge of God. Help us to be afraid of sin. Help us to be afraid and humbled by the vagaries of sin and the promise of death. We saw how as soon as Adam and Eve fell that they died spiritually, immediately. They could not find life by going by the ways and the wisdom of Satan. They, they would not become wise like God. They would not be able to think God's thoughts after him by deviating from him and rebelling against him. But they, uh, they died. And from that spiritual death came physical death. Upon every man and woman and child that has died since then, except for uh, either the beloved Son of God, Jesus, who was raised again from the dead, or a couple of people uh, like Enoch, that represented that which was to come, namely the resurrection from the dead, the life everlasting through the gospel of God, the righteousness of Jehovah. Bless us, O Lord, in this knowledge. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.